Hello, everybody, and welcome to tonight's edition of Battle to Be's Rise Up, Ignite Your Life podcast. This is episode number 40, so we're really excited about that. And tonight's guest is someone that I just met a couple days ago, and I have had the privilege of seeing just some very short clips of him speaking, and he is a hell of a powerhouse. He is a voice for change, and he has a over 30-year career in law enforcement. He's still serving in a very special way that we're going to talk about tonight. And he is an author, speaker, and absolute catalyst for change. So please welcome tonight's guest, John Kelly. Hey, Krista. Nice to see you. I'm so happy to have you here. I actually just got to see you speak for the very first time this morning because you made a post on your LinkedIn and it was phenomenal. You are an impactful speaker for sure. Oh, thank you. You know, it's um, it's easy to speak in front of large groups when you are passionate and you care about the message, right? Um, and uh, that's certainly, it's a, it's, it's a, a cause near and dear to my heart. It's funny, that conversation, I just had that conversation with someone today who is a aspiring speaker. And he said, I feel like I'm constantly running my head against the wall because like everyone tells me how to craft what I'm going to say, but it never feels right. And he actually hit his head and, <laughs> and had this injury and then he had to speak and was just totally not prepared. So he went up on stage going, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to do this. And in that moment, right before he spoke, he said he, oh, he felt an absolute sense of calm and just let himself be himself. Right. And that's when it worked out for him. So, yeah. and that's when he found his voice and what mattered and what he was going to continue to speak on because he just let it happen. Yeah. It's, so, it's really cool when that happens. It's, you know, when you're talking about the issues that we face as first responders, there's no script you can follow. Like I have, I have some bullet points to make sure that I don't forget to talk about, you know, it's a three hour presentation that I do. So I want to make sure that I talk about everything that needs to be covered, but how, how one talks about it in the stories and the examples, that's gotta be real. That's gotta be raw or, you might as well just play a tape up there and leave the room, you know? That's why we do the show this way. No right. preparation, I no specific questions. We just go with the flow, which is super fun. I absolutely love it. So you were in law enforcement for 30 years. That's a yeah. really long career. It, um, When you say it that way, it certainly seems, you know, it's hard to believe sometimes. You know, we get so used to changing professions. And, um, I, I just, I, I was very blessed. I was very lucky. I, I was able to change assignments in law enforcement whenever I started getting that itch, like, okay, this isn't keeping my attention. You know, what's the next thing that I can get involved in and, and be excited about. And so I was really blessed. I, I, I was uh, a deputy field training officer, detective canine handler, I got to hunt people like, and I got paid to hunt people, which is like the best job in the world. Um, and then I went to the training division and I had a lot of great memories there. 
uh, some really high speed stuff. And then my last gig, I was a motor sergeant. And so I, I got to run all the big wigs around South Florida for my last seven years. So yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, in, you know, in a blink of an eye though, you know, 30 years, it, uh, it seems like a long time, but it really wasn't it really wasn't, you know, I'm now I'm doing, you know, now I'm this, I, I'm a, it's, it's a second chapter, you know, I, uh, I, I had somebody tell me that you did your 30 so you could do this now, which kind of put things in perspective for me. Well, it sounds like you really enjoyed every minute of that career. Did you have phases when you weren't quite sure it was what you still wanted to do or when you were just like wondering if you should still keep going or everything? You know what, uh, Krista, I always loved it. I don't know that I love the challenge like there's nothing else that you can do where you don't know what the day is going to bring. I mean, pretty much most jobs, you know, what you leave on the desk is what you're going to come back to tomorrow morning. You know, being a first responder, being in law enforcement or a firefighter or a corrections officer or in the military, you have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. So that was the kind of, that was the hook, you know, that was the draw. Um, certainly there were times, you know, so a lot of self-destruction during that 30 years that I never questioned the job. I, I questioned me, you know, I questioned me and what I was doing, but uh, not the job. Now the job was, the job was awesome. Even with all the bullshit that comes with it, it's still, you know, it's still an awesome job. I absolutely resonate with that, that idea of not knowing what the next day brings. And then in the very beginning of the career, there's this, you want the worst of the worst and the bad, like you want to see right. uh, just the, the crazy and the chaos and you're like, bring it on, bring it on. Right. So at, at some points that, that changes a little bit, but it, I remember in the emergency room, the the first few months it was just like bring on all the crazy like right. you know I, that was cool let's do it again <laughs> yeah that's and you're i mean you're you're seeing the aftermath of all that crazy and then it gets crazy where you're at i mean it's just it's just a, a, a continuing of this mess that started you know hours days weeks ago that ends up on your you know in your room right well, and I did tissue recovery too. So there's always, there's always so many stories mm. to everything. Like, as you say, every, everyone on the table has like this huge, huge story and you want all the details and all the information, but you never get to know. You only get one little piece, which is your little piece. Yeah. <laughs> little snippets. Little snippets of, of absolute chaos, which is really a much bigger example of what's going on inside of us all the time right sure no never ending never, never ending. ending so was law enforcement what you wanted to do when you were a little kid do you do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up uh, i had so i had um some uncles that were in the military uh one was a green beret one flew rescue choppers in vietnam so i was leaning really heavily in 87, I went through OCS uh, in the Marine Corps in Quantico. And that was that kind of, do I go into the Marine Corps or do I go into law enforcement? So really from early on, it was going to be one or the other. And um, 
you know, I think law enforcement won out on that one. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you went to exactly where you were meant to go. I think so. I, I don't, uh, Krista, I can't see me ever doing anything else. You know, it's, you know, that mission, right? Taking care of people that can't take care of themselves, protecting people, righting wrongs, you know, holding people accountable, you know, being the enforcer, being the provider, being the caregiver, you know, all in one. Right. So there's a lot of people that go into helping professions because they're trying to get away from like a life of trauma or a difficult childhood or to to right the wrongs that happened to them as children is that something that guided your path or unbeknownst to me so through this journey i realized that it was so much easier to fix everybody else's problems at the expense of ever really taking a hard look at myself so as long as I had a, somebody else to fix, I was good, you know? Um, and so that kind of, the, the job kind of provides that for you, doesn't it? I mean, it gives you a problem, huge problems every day to take care of. And I think for, at least for me, I did that at the expense of ever taking a hard look at myself and, and addressing the issues that I had and, you know, you can only wear the mask for so long, right? You can only pretend for so long. And then, um, yeah, the job provided that perfect escape from having to deal with my own reality. At least that's the way I saw it. Yeah. So did it all like become clear all at once? What, what was driving you or did your process of recognizing the mental health aspect of it did that come later so i'll give you the yeah. reader's digest version of john kelly and it's um so i'm a mixed bag man i am um, so an alcoholic um grew up in boston uh dad's an alcoholic you know not blaming him but it's kind of like you do you're a product of your environment so if that's what's going on in the house the chances are unless you remove yourself from that environment, you're kind of following suit. So always had a problem with drinking, um, stopped drinking in 96, haven't had a drink since. Um, so had that going on. And then, you know, when you start throwing all the work things into it with the, you know, I was young when uh, the first time somebody tried to kill me, I was 24. And so that's, you know, um, I was never, nobody ever, you know, I'm sure people wanted to kill me in the past, but I, you know, I just never was confronted with that life and death thing. And, and so right out of the gate, I was about a year and a half on the job and I had somebody trying to kill me hand to hand stuff and it got real nutty. And, you know, now the, the trauma is starting to, to, to sneak in. And so you know, it doesn't go away. I, um, I started very early on and I worked the West Fort Lauderdale, uh, in Broward County in uh, Florida. And it was in the nineties. It was 
there were nights that we never shut our emergency equipment off. We just went from call to call to call. And the the running joke was you had to bring a, a, a change of clothes to go home in because we were bloodied. We were just bloodied at the end of every night. Uh, some of it was our own, you know, often it was somebody else's, but you couldn't go home wearing those same clothes that you worked in. It was just, you know, and so, you know, we would all joke about it, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's somebody's brain matter in the backseat of your car. And so, you know, all these things, and I don't have coping skills, at least I didn't then. So that, that trauma and that horror kind of caught up quickly. And, uh, you know, it's what we talk about now, right? You know, the, our inability to deal and cope and use healthy ways to deal with the horror. We, we, and, and unless we can acknowledge what's going on around us, you know, we kind of, we stay in that denial mode and we isolate and we self-medicate and we do all those self-destructive behaviors. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we're laying in bed crying, staring at the ceiling fan, wondering, you know, what the hell's going on. And, uh, that was a, a good portion of my life, uh, even through marriage um, and the vast majority of my career. I did, I didn't start connecting the dots till, you know, 20, 25 years into my career. And it sounds crazy, but there was uh, looking back and, and that's what kind of, that's what gets me angry. And that's what fuels what I'm doing now because I'm moderately intelligent, right? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not a scholar, but I, I, I'm right around that, you know, the scale, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the neighborhood. Um, and it took me almost 20 years to figure it out about what I was doing to myself and the pain I was causing my family. Uh, and the, and just, if you're getting to the point where you're thinking about killing yourself, something's not going right. You know, you're not doing well. Um, and if everybody that you vow to love and take care of and protect, if you're, you know, you're failing them and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a really shitty day when you have to look in the mirror and, and hate the person looking back at you, you know, that demands you doing something about it. And I got to that place. Um, I, I wish I got to that place sooner because I would have been able to save a lot of people a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering um you know you get to that place when you get to that place but um yeah it's uh it was a hell of a ride it really was and this that 25 years of not knowing what's going on that is why you and i are both doing what we're doing because yes. we need to be educating and intervening before there's a problem, not after, right? Right, right. No, and, and you know what? You know, we said this before we started recording, right? You don't know what you don't know. And and it's, if the culture, if the culture pro, promotes isolation and or an over-reliance on alcohol and drugs to cope with the horror, um, if if the profession doesn't promote family, because listen, we can talk, we talk a good game, 
Um, that's a bunch of shit. Uh, you know, th- our professions pull us from our families. They, d- they do the exact opposite of nurturing a family. Um, and so we let it happen. We let it happen to us and we don't, we don't ever say no. We don't ever take a stand to protect our families from what you see. This is the, the other thing, Krista, when we go through shit, we just think it's our own shit. We completely, completely forget that there's a family there, that there's a kid there, that there is somebody that is being victimized by your poor decisions, by your bad decisions, by your inability to take care of yourself. And that ripple effect is real. And, you know, I remember I said I was a mixed bag, alcoholic, addict, adulterer, um, one, you know, thoughts of wanting to kill myself that paid a, you know, it, 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 it fucked with me a bit, but it was devastating to my family. And like, they're the last ones to ever get <laughs> any help in all this. Um, I, uh, crazy. My daughter's 25. And once a week we go out in the back. I have a fire pit down by the, in the backyard. And we go down there and I throw some logs on the fire and we just, we put the phones away and we just talk and it could, whatever the topic is. And I'm very honest and open with my daughter. We've got a really great relationship despite, you know, despite my best efforts to destroy my family. Um, I kept that relationship with my daughter really strong and we would talk and I, I mentioned, you know, I had an affair and I, I stepped out on my wife and all the turmoil and pain that that caused. Um, my daughter was old enough to know something was wrong, but really not old enough at the time to know what it was. Right. And I talked to her about, you know, the mistakes that I made. Cause I also want her to know that perfect doesn't exist. Right. That, you know, we, we, when we start holding ourselves to these unrealistic expectations, we're going to be disappointed. So I talk about not being perfect and I talk about owning it about when you, when you make a mistake, you have to own it. And that's the only way to come back from it. And, you know, we got into it and I talked to her uh, about what happened when I stepped out on her mom and how we got counseling and, and how, my Nicole, she owned her, her part in all this and, and that we got therapy and counseling. And then she looked at me and Krista, it broke my heart. She said, no, this is a grown, she's 25 years old having this conversation with me 15 years ago. She goes, did you ever think that I needed to talk to somebody? Mm. You want to talk about fucking failing as a dad? Um, and I looked at her and I said, it's like, it's, it's almost like, what did you say? Did you ever think that I would need to talk to somebody? Uh, here I am thinking that what I'm doing isn't affecting my daughter. Like she's little. How would you, why would she know? Right. What, how could this possibly affect her? Um, and it broke my heart. I was like, um, I said, baby, I am, I know sorry is kind of empty right now. I said, but. I really, I was just focused on your mother and I trying to, trying to get that, 
that relationship back and, and try to getting, you know, get us on track. And I didn't even think that what, 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 you know, what was going on in our house was, was having a spillover and was affecting you. And, uh, and I think, you know, my takeaway from that is, uh, I, I spoke, I spoke about this not too long ago about the importance of, you know, the guy who has the affair is going to now fucking lecture everybody on being faithful. Uh, I, all right, I listen, I, I get the hypocrisy, but if I'm owning it, all right, I fucked up. But so let's learn from that. So everybody else doesn't have to make the mistake that I made. Um, if you're out there and, and you're not being committed, if you're in a marriage or a committed relationship and you're not being true, then you're a piece of shit. And the ripple effect from being that person is far reaching. Um, we tell ourselves that it's just our situation. It's occurring in a vacuum and it's not affecting anybody else. Um, I found out in a really shitty, raw, meaningful way that that's just not the case. Um, the truth is if you're not being a good father, husband, friend, um, everybody in your life gets impacted from those actions. And, uh, it, it's important to own it. It's important to recognize it. And then more importantly, Krista, we, we got to do something about it. We got to take action and taking action is where it, you know, everybody talks a good game, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't take action. You're in the same place you, uh, you were where you were a year ago. You know, I don't know how I got on that segue, but. No, it's perfect. Because we oftentimes, when we're having conversations about, I always say occupational traumatic stress, because we are talking about post-traumatic stress. This is because of the job. So when we talk about it, there's this tendency to either totally take on all the responsibility the individual does, or they take none of it. Hmm. So recognizing that 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 traumatic stress does impact your brain and it does create a little bit of desire for self-destruction. It takes a little of that logic and reasoning and, you know, puts it on the back burner because it's not your, not your focus right now. And, you know, we tend to, again, go shopping and gambling and drinking and, and adultering and all of these actions right. happen in the PTSD world. It's not a hundred percent the PTSD, it's your, your logical mind, that prefrontal cortex is a less active and less functional, but it's always still choice and it's always still your responsibility. And you have to choose to fix things or you have to choose to take responsibility for your own actions right. or you don't. And like you say, you don't, and the repercussions are real and very widespread. So we can't just use the diagnosis as a full-on excuse to say, well, I'm a PTSD person, so you know, deal with it. Yeah. That, yeah. that doesn't cut that doesn't cut it. Yeah, that doesn't cut it. You know, we um and this is the thing, you know, when we said you don't know what you don't know, but that doesn't excuse behavior. Right. I mean that that's the other thing. You know, there's no shortage of things to look at and to, to blame for where we are in life. And, you know, I, I found this, you know, I had all these little epiphanies, you know, over my last, uh, 
you know, 15, 20 years, that the longer you keep pointing the finger and blaming something other than yourself for the place that you are, you know, that's the, that you will stay exactly where you are. You know, it, it's, it's really about taking ownership. A at the end of the day, shit's going to happen. And it's going to, and, and, and some of it's going to be your fault and some of it's not. But the only way to really take control, I believe, is to own it and say, listen, um, you know, that serenity prayer, um, I, that serenity prayer, um, it is, it, it is, it is, it is the life of, it's the lifeblood of living a life full of passion and, and worth and, you know, grant me the serenity, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. I, I think we're making, you know, it's, it's so easy, right? It's so easy. And, and yet we get caught up in a lot of that, that nonsense and that noise, right? That white noise that doesn't really help us. It kind of keeps us stuck. But I think, you know, I know that that prayer has been really instrumental in me being able to chart a course, you know, of progress, right? Better today than I was yesterday, knowing that perfect doesn't exist. You know, um, I've got no, I, not only do I have uh, the, the things that I don't have control over, but I don't have control over yesterday. Yesterday's done. It's in the past. And, um, you know, for the longest time, Krista, I never forgave myself for the things that I did. Um, and that was keeping me stuck. I was like, everybody else, I, I don't want to minimize what I did, but everybody else was willing to willing to work with me, right? Willing to see where this thing goes. Was willing to not give me a pass, because that wouldn't be accurate, but was willing to, you know, was will, was would have some faith that you're worthy of a second chance. Um, for the longest time, I, I didn't think I was. I didn't think I was worthy of a second chance. And so you not realizing, you know, that and you not believing in that serenity prayer and you not believing in the power of where you're at and the things that you can do. I mean, that, you know, that keeps you stuck too. So it's a, it's been a road. We live up to our beliefs. So if you don't believe that you're worthy of a second chance, you won't be. You'll make choices that ensure that that's true. You'll just continue down that same old path of patterns. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I, I like to, you know, it's funny. So I don't have amnesia, right? I, I've got a really good memory. Um, and, you know, I, there are a lot of things I wish I could forget. But I think... I also have to believe that things happen for a reason, you know, and hey, hey, people always say, you know, when they win the lottery, oh, it happened for a reason. Well, yeah, no shit. It's a, it's a positive thing, right? You know, um, but what about the horror? What about, what about all the bad decisions? What about the pain you cause? I, I think that that has to happen for a reason too. I mean, I, I, it can't just be one way. It can't just happen for a reason when the outcome is good. If, if the outcome in the moment is really shitty, that that had to have happened for a reason, and I I don't know that I can I can explain why or I, I'm the authority on that, 
but I think it shapes us. And I think if the things didn't happen to me and I didn't make the decisions that I made, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be the person that you are now. No, it's, it's, it, it, it's all part of it. You know, our, you know, we don't want our past to define us. Absolutely not. The past is, is that shit that happened to us in the past. It doesn't define us, but I think it shapes us. I think it can motivate us. I think it can remind us of maybe a person we never want to be again. Uh, but I also think our past can empower us to be better and to share what we've learned. And I think that's the place that I'm at right now. I work with uh, victims of human trafficking and domestic violence and childhood abuse. And we have a program um, where we turn their pain into stories so that they can actually write everything down. And there's something about speaking your truth and claiming your story. There's something about that acknowledging the past, but acknowledging it in a way that you just did. Acknowledging it in a way that it shaped who you are now, but you have to let go of it if you're going to move forward for tomorrow. So right. it happens, it exists, but are you going to let it control you? Are you going to let it identify you? And you've decided to move past that being identified by your past and taking those names and those horrible things, you know, I mean, you probably called yourself a jerk and you probably called yourself all these things associated with your past, but that's sure. not who you are now. No. Who you are now is a guide and a leader and a motivator and a, a change maker. So that's not the guy that you used to be, right? You know, it's, um, and that's the thing. And, and the beauty of all this is I decide that Krista. That's my decision on who I'm going to be. Every single day. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's my decision on how I show up and, and who I just, you know, and if, if I'm going to be, you know, and the beauty of all that, what, what has happened is I'll never be that guy again. Uh, the guy from my past, you know, that guy's dead. He doesn't exist anymore. And there are a lot of people that are glad that that guy doesn't exist anymore, you know? And, uh, me being one of them. But uh, I think that I think that it's impossible to have empathy. It's impossible to 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 love unconditionally. It's impossible to to really connect and feel without the pain. Um, and, and so it, it's kind of sound messed up, but the more pain you go through, I think the I think the better person you become. I agree. I think that's how so many of us become healers and become leaders and become helping professionals. Every person who serves, serves because there's a passion underneath it. There's right. a need to help other people. There's a need to do something good. That comes from somewhere. Right. And, and I think you're right. I think more often than not, there's always always alternatives but more often than not i think that does it's born of pain the most beautiful things are born of pain i think so right like the phoenix rising in the back there right? Right. <laughs> i mean i'm looking at it it's like that's that's badass right i mean that's we're born from the ashes that is my life story over and over and over again yes that's, that's that a hell is, of a story it is it is a lot um 
I've been on numerous shows talking about all that. But this well, one's about today. It's about you. Oh, no, <laughs> I will, I'll have to have you on my podcast and you can fill me in. All right. We could do that. All right. Fair so, enough. Tell, tell us about sometimes heroes need help. Oh my God. So <laughs> when I, I listen, thank you. Um, Sometimes heroes need help. I was in the training division for quite a while at my uh, former agency, and we were doing some really high-speed, low-drag, you know, shooting on the move, counter-ambush drills, you know, all the all the great stuff that, you know, if we could have written a script on what we wanted to be training our guys on, you know, we had carte blanche. It was really awesome. Uh, but at the end of the day, inevitably, we'd have a couple guys – milling about you know and listen if we cut a group of cops out of training early i mean they're crashing into each other trying to get out the gate right so like we'd be like you look at the guy go what are you doing here like what's up right and so you know lo and behold he doesn't want to go home home's not a place he wants to go and so we would hold counsel at the end of training and we would get guys resources and we'd hook them up with counseling. And if guys were having problems drinking, you know, we would have these like interventions after training and it just didn't happen like once a week, it happened often. And um, then the light kind of little light bulb went off and I went, you know, we're, we're training these guys on all the wrong stuff. Listen, if you're a cop, if you're a first responder and you don't know how to do your job at this stage in the game, you might just be a moron. You know, I mean, I don't know what else we can do for you. We we provide so much training for the job. You really should be able to do it with your eyes closed. But we don't provide any training in life. Zero. My my argument is we don't need to be better cops and firefighters and nurses and doctors and 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 paramedics. We need to be better humans. We, we need to be better at this thing called life. And once we are better at life, that'll translate into whatever our chosen field is. We, we will become superstars, but not if we can't handle the life aspect of it. So that's what, how sometimes heroes need help was, was born. I, I, it was a realization that the things that were tripping guys and gals up was not cop stuff. It was the life stuff. So I developed a program that addresses the personal, professional, financial, physical, and mental health of our people. And I use a lot of my own life experiences. And, you know, each block kind of shows like, all right, the, these are the holes that you can fall into. Um, and, and more importantly, the, this is the way to get out of them. And it's really from like a, a firsthand basis. Um, you know, I wasn't joking, alcoholic, addict, adulterer. And I, and I go, and that's just the A's. You know, we go to the B's, the C's, and the D's. And then, you know, it just turns into a whole program, right? Um, so I've been putting that program on for about a year and a half now. And I'll speak to agencies. I'll speak to their command staff, their frontline supervisors, their deputies. Um, it's really been really humbling, um, Krista. I... You know, it's my program, right? Like, I developed it. Like, but like, who the hell am I to develop anything? And, you know, why would somebody pay to come listen to me? And, you know, you know, you kind of just, you start, not self-doubt, but when you realize that 
a lot of people, we all have the same story, but, and I, I, I was approached, you know, numerous times after my seminars, the thing that makes me different is that I'm okay talking about it. I'm okay telling you the times that I failed and the times that I was absolutely ashamed of myself and the hurt and the pain that I caused in my friends and my family and my wife and my daughter. Um, because through that, you know, and I say before I start, you know, hopefully, you know, when I talk, you'll identify a little bit of me and you, but if not, maybe you have identified somebody under your care, somebody that you're responsible for that needs you to intervene in their life. Um, I think the philosophy of it is, listen, this, this brother and sisterhood that we have, it transcends a bumper sticker or a patch or a pin. But a, a lot of motherfuckers are out there thinking that they're in this thing because, you know, they've got a thin blue line, you know, patch on their shirt or some shit. Um, it's about caring. It's about giving a shit about a total stranger and doing something about it. And I think for the longest time, we've gotten away from that as as a as a group and as a profession. Um, you know, when I when I talk to people that are not in the first responder community, they're shocked to hear that, you know, we don't all have each other's back and we're not supporting it. We eat our own. We are we are absolutely savage when it comes to how we should be dealing and interacting with each other. And instead of lifting each other up and supporting each other and having each other's back, we do some catty high school bullshit and, and, and we get downright fucking nasty and it's absolutely terrible. And so that's, if you can't tell, it's something I get a little pissed about. And that's something that I talk about when I talk about the leadership aspect of all this is that, you know, um, having somebody's back, um, comes at a price, you know, and we've got a bunch of leaders, you know, that are willing to, I don't need a boss to have my back when I'm hundred percent, right. I need him to have my back when I'm about 70%, right. Right. There needs to be some risk involved with him having my back. And, um, fortunately for me, um, I had two supervisors who kind of set the framework for this, this, and, um, I was drunk at work and, and I'll, I'll zip through the story. I was drunk at work. They knew I was drunk. They called me in. Um, and I thought I was going to get locked up and taken to the breath, uh, breath, uh, alcohol testing facility. And, uh, they sent me home and the next day I went into work and sober and they sat me down and they said, that last night will never happen again. You've got two options. You can go see this woman and get some help, or we can come and refer you. So I went and got help. I ended up going to an AA meeting, uh, four cops, by, sponsored by cops, and I got some help. During that time, there was a shift change. And my meetings were at eight o'clock on Thursday night. Well, now I was going to be working during that time. I went back to my supervisor. I said, Hey, uh, I got a problem. My meetings, I work during our meetings. I uh. and he says, you don't have a problem per me. Go to your meetings on duty, put yourself out on an area check, 
until your meeting is over. And I just, he saved my life. Because if he doesn't make, see, he didn't check with anybody. He just made the call, right? He, he, he put himself out there to get rep. He didn't run it by the lieutenant or the chief or the sheriff. He just said, you know what? One of my guys needs me to be a boss. He needs me to have his back. So, son of a bitch, he had my back. And that that um, that lesson, that example, has stayed with me through my whole supervisory career that um, unless you're putting yourself out there for your people, you're a waste of the rank. You know, you've you've got a responsibility to care. You don't have to like, notice I said, I didn't say like. There are a lot of people I don't like, but I care about them because this profession, there's a moral obligation that exists if we're going to be doing this thing of ours to care for each other. And uh, I think that's gotten corrupted. I think somewhere along the way, we've, we've come to this belief that I have to like you to care about you. And that's just wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, I know there are a lot of people that don't like me. Um, and I'm sure the feelings are mutual, but I care. I care about them. And so sometimes Heroes Need Help was born from that, caring for our brothers and sisters, um, you know, picking them up, showing them the way, helping them out of the hole if they fall into it, and uh, giving them some tools and techniques to navigate through life. You know what? It's been humbling, Tara, uh, Krista. I um, I I never thought that. You know, when I'm done presenting, I've got a line of people like wanting to check in and come up and 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 talk and 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 have a hug and, you know, it, it's it's resonating with people. I think because for a very 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 long time, we haven't talked about any of these things. We don't talk about our relationships. We don't talk about our financial struggles. We don't talk about our interpersonal issues at work. We don't talk about our uh, addictions. We don't talk about our mental health. The last thing in the world we talk about is our mental health. And for me to stand in front of a group of men and, and women and tell them about, you know, the different situations that we've all been in uh, and not see a dry eye in the room there's a connection there and they're, they're, they're getting it. And guess what? I'm no less of a man for shedding a tear. And I, I think when they walk away from that, I think they have a, a, a profound sense of self that, you know what, you know, it's okay. It's, it's okay to, it's okay to show emotion. It's okay to talk. Um, and the only way we get through these things is by relying on each other and, and, and being there and supporting each other. Cause, cause what we've been doing up to this point hasn't been working right. When, when we look at suicides in law enforcement and for, in the first responder community, you know, for every bad guy that kills a cop, three take their own life. That's fucking insanity. And so what we have is, on the heels of one of our brothers or sisters killing themselves, there's a somebody from administration will step to the microphone and they'll say that uh, 
this is tragic and we need to do more for our first responder community. And then everything goes back to fucking business as usual the next day. And we don't, this is the thing. And I want to share this with you and, and your viewers and listeners. For the longest time, I thought that somebody that killed themselves was a pussy. That they were weak. That they uh, they were selfish. And it wasn't until, you know, I was thinking about taking my own life that I realized that they're not that. That they've got a broken mind. They've got an injury. And their injury is preventing them from seeing the love all around them. And so... Whenever we go down that roll, uh, that road, and you know, there was a saying, you know, try not to apply a healthy mind to one that is damaged, right? To one that is injured, and that's what we do. And I don't think we're we mean to be mean spirited, but I think if we just how could how could on one hand this person be the guy that everybody goes to? How could on one hand, that girl be the person that everybody relies on, who's the person who who's always at the front of the stack, who's the person who's always looking out for everybody, who's the person who will get injured so you can be safe. How can that person be something less if they take the wrong? It's just, it doesn't make sense. They're not less. And 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 we we've We've got this fucking stigma that we've associated with it because I don't think we've ever, you know, when things hurt us and when things are really scary, we just, we don't talk about them. And so by not talk about, by not talking, we, we keep perpetuating this myth that you're less, that you're less if you take your own life and nothing could be farther from the truth, you know? And so I think that we've, we, you, me, Everybody in this thing of ours has a really long way to go to normalize, if that's even a word these days, to normalize these discussions so that somebody that's suffering, somebody that's really, somebody that doesn't want to wake up tomorrow can see the value in their life and and the fact that they're not less and that there are people out there that love them and that there's a better way. Um, but if we can't even have the conversation, you know, it, it's about early intervention, right? It's about getting to that person before they get to the depths that they get to. And I don't think we do a good job of that either. You know, like I said, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. That is my life's goal, that preemptive, that preventive. Right. But the funny thing is, is you mentioned that how they get up to the microphone, you know, the leaders and they're like, we need to change this. But I know two people that have programs that do preventative and they call everyone. They call everyone and say, this is what we're offering. This is what we want to do for training. This is how we can help your people. And the answer has so often been, we don't have a suicide problem in my precinct. My people don't kill themselves. My people are fine. Literally. And, and again, so, you know, it, it's just, it's, 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 it's really, it's, 
the measure, right? <laughs> See, the, the only the only way, <laughs> the only matrix that they're using is once you die. <laughs> so there's no, well, well, shit. Okay, so comparatively speaking, you had, you know, maybe. Listen, my former agency, since 2010, had eight people kill themselves. That doesn't include recently retired. Because if you start looking at retirees, listen, if you start looking at retirees or people that are no longer active duty, whether it's in the medical field, the firefighters, corrections, if you start looking at the retirees, that number increases exponentially. But that doesn't look good on the agencies, so that's we're not going to calculate that. Nor are we going to. Nor is the CDC going to calculate that, or any other entity that's compiling statistical data. Nor is the FBI. And, and listen, you can't tell me there's not a way to track it. This is, you know, they've got a matrix and and and, and a, a a unit of measure for everything in this life. Uh, they just don't want to track it. So back to my agency, we had since 2010, eight of our deputies have killed themselves. In that same, same time frame in 2010, how many, I want you to guess for me, uh, Krista, how many deputies fell at the hands of a suspect since 2010? Most probably if your statistics are holding, you lost two or three. Zero. Zero. The number one killer of cops at the Broward County Sheriff's Office is suicide. <laughs> that says something. Um, and, and listen, there are uh, there are some really well-intended, lovely people there. So what are we doing about it? <laughs> so what are we doing about it? And it's one of those things that, um, it's preventative. It's you got to get ahead of it. It starts with mental health and well-being. It starts with having conversations. It starts with with having people knowledgeable to see the slow progression of mental illness um, and not waiting until there's some catastrophic situation that now, you know, I like to address problems when they first arrive, right? When they're small, when they're manageable, when they need a minor tweaking here and there. If we're getting to the point with somebody that is having suicidal ideation or maybe, it, I'm not going to say it's too late, but we've waited too long. Absolutely. And so I, I think there's this, Our, our leaders and our bosses are so uncomfortable talking about this piece. Cause I, I think really, cause I think when they go home at night and the cameras are off and they take the uniform off, I think that it's really hard to wash that blood off their hands. I think that they know they should be doing more. And um, there are a million reasons why they, they they're not. Um, and for them to, to be real and look in the mirror because they don't care. They, they, and, and, you know, I don't think I'm being too hard on them. Um, if you care about it, you address it. If we were losing deputies on traffic stops, 
at the ratio that we're killing ourselves, there would be a complete overhaul of training. We would, we would, we wouldn't stop doing traffic stops. We would find why we were dying and we would address it. We would completely overhaul training. We know the number one reason why you don't go home is suicide. You taking your own life. And we do no training, none, zero, to address that threat. It's, it's lunacy. And, and you're beating your head against a wall going, why can't, so what are we doing substantively? What are we doing proactively? What are we doing to inoculate our people from this threat? You're more likely to kill yourself than to be killed by a suspect. So what are we doing with that data? You've got the FBI now. I've got the friggin' app on my phone. You've got the FBI tracking this. I just pulled up the app on my phone. The Law Enforcement Suicide Data Collection. What are we doing with all this data collection and all this knowledge? It's a fucking shame. And, you know... Um, What we're doing about it is you and I are having the conversation. And if enough, if enough people start yelling and screaming and demanding accountability, that'll be the beginning of a culture change and and some really genuine, heartfelt, meaningful policies and procedures and, and programs that help our people on the front end before there's an issue before you know before they need help right and uh that's where our efforts need to be and beyond that what you and i are doing is creating oh, yeah. those programs and putting right. them in place so that the work can be done yeah it, it, it's um listen you know, we said this before, things didn't get messed up overnight. They're not going to get fixed overnight. This has been an issue since the beginning of time. Um, but it's not insurmountable. It's not. If it was, you and I wouldn't be doing what we're doing, right? We wouldn't. It, it, this is nothing that we can't beat. This is nothing that we can't get a handle on. This is nothing. It's it just, it's going to take effort. It's going it, to, you know, and I think. And I said this in that seminar, you know, when we're faced with problems, they do one of two things to us. They're either seemingly insurmountable and they paralyze us with fear and they keep us from taking action or they empower us or they, they enrage us to do something about it. And so depending on the type of leader, man or woman that you want to be, you can let this problem of suicide and, and, and the deterioration of mental health within the first responder community, you can let it overwhelm you and throw your hands up in the air and say, well, what are we going to do? Or you can fucking do something about it. And you can do that proactively and start removing stigmas and implementing resiliency programs and mindfulness programs and giving people the techniques that they need 
to start dealing with these life stressors so they don't get to the point of that hopeless injury to the brain. And that's all I have to say about that. I was just going to say, is there anything else you want to leave our folks with? You know, um, at the end of the day, Krista, you know, we're all we got. Like, there's nobody's coming to save us. Nobody's, I think sometimes we, when we sit back in our chair, like, well, the government's going to figure it out. Like somebody, you know, I mean, that's what people do. They, you know, well, the police are going to come. They're going to solve the problem. Or, you know what? The fire department, the, the, the doctor, the nurse, they're going to help me. They're going to save me. Nobody's coming to save us. And this isn't a doom and gloom message, but it's meant to, 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 to light a fire under your ass that if you're waiting, if you're in the wings, if you're, if you're hoping, hope is not a plan. We've got to take action. We've got to do something about it. We've got to get ahead of this. And at the end of the day, you know, I've got a saying, if not me, then who? If not you, then who? We need to stop fucking waiting for somebody else to step up. And we got to step up and start addressing these issues if we want the life for our first responders and our brothers and sisters. If, 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 if we want to achieve that life um, in that place, then it's going to take action. And that would be the last thought I would leave. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. It's my pleasure. Forward to connecting with you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. And if you are a leader in a department, police, fire, emergency room, uh, any frontline, first responder, high-stress profession, and you're interested in making these changes, connect with battletobe.org. Our website is on the video. We will, in the next few months, be launching a program that is scientifically validated and supported for prevention, pre-hire and at-hire, resilience, mental health maintenance throughout the course of the career, and recovery services for those who are struggling with the symptoms already of occupational traumatic stress. So the program, it will soon be available. We can come and teach your staff how to implement it. We can get you all the documentation that you need and we can train you guys to keep it going. We also have online support and a membership so you can have all of your employees can have access to our resources super inexpensive real world realistic very logical and this is not something we can't overcome and it's very much more simple than you think it is and if you want john kelly to come and talk to come and speak and inspire your your employees to get some information in their hands that can change lives. He is, I will put a link so that you can access him. And he has a book out there that we didn't talk about tonight. So you may want to look him up 
I am sure it's available on Amazon. It is available on Amazon. So I will give you guys that information as well. If you want to support this podcast, please kick the, please push the button at the bottom of the broadcast once you see the anchor link. And I will be posting this up in about 30 minutes in case you missed our live. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Have an amazing evening. Battle to be off.